Hi, you're listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa, coming to you from the IPG studio on the campus of Virginia Tech. Joining me are the interviewers for today's show, Nada Barada, Linnea Cutter, and Molly Todd. Nada, Linnea, and Molly, would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, I'm Nada Barada, fourth-year PhD candidate in the Aspect program. I'm Molly Todd. I'm a second-year PhD student in the Aspect program here at Tech as well. Hi, I'm Linnea Cutter, and I'm a second-year PhD student in the Aspect program. Great, thank you. Today's program features guest scholar Alexander Wendt. Alexander Wendt is Mershon Professor of International Security and Professor of Political Science at The Ohio State University. He received his Ph.D. in 1989 from the University of Minnesota, and before coming to OSU in 2004, had taught previously at Yale University, Dartmouth College, and the University of Chicago. Wendt is interested in philosophical aspects of social science with special reference to international relations. He's the author of several well-known journal articles, as well as Social Theory of International Politics, which in 2006 received the International Studies Association Award for Best Book of the Decade in the Field. In the 2013 TRIP survey of 1,400 international relations scholars, he was named as the most influential scholar in the field over the past 20 years. Wendt's recent book, Quantum Mind and Social Science, explores the implications for social science of the possibility that consciousness is a macroscopic quantum mechanical phenomenon, in effect, that human beings are walking wave functions. Wendt is also co-editor of International Theory, which he co-founded with Duncan Snydahl to bring together scholarship from international relations theory, international legal theory, and international political theory. Alexander Wendt, welcome to Trustees Without Borders. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'll call on our interviewers now, Virginia Tech graduate students Nada Barada, Linnea Cutter, and Molly Todd, to explore with you your work developing a quantum social science that you believe will, as you've said, result in a fundamental rethinking of our relationship with our fellow human beings and with nature as a whole. Nada, Linnea, Molly? Well, welcome, Dr. Wendt. It's so good to have you with us today. Um, in thinking and doing quantum, the first question that we had is, what are the implications of quantum mind and social sciences, your latest book for research methodologies in social sciences? For methodologies? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I think it would require learning for people who have the technical skills. It would require uh, learning quantum probability theory, quantum statistics. Um, quantum game theory, perhaps, quantum decision theory. Um, and basically, every methodology that you have that's classical, you have a quantum counterpart. So I don't know how many of those you'd have to learn in order to be competent in this area, but I think some of them probably. So related to these implications, I wanted to ask a few questions that put this book in conversation with your previous work in international relations. So how should this quantum turn affect theorizing and constructivism? And more specifically, do you intend that your work on quantum theory should be put in conversation with social theory of international politics? 
Well, on the latter, I would say, no, I don't see any particular conversation to be had. Um, this book supersedes the old one as I see it, um, although the old one has an international relations component that the quantum book does not. Um, but I think, in a way, this is a radicalization of constructivism, although I don't talk much about constructivism anymore, but I think it is really an attempt to deepen constructivist ideas in directions that they hadn't gone before. Thank you. And in what ways, in touching upon constructivism specifically, in what ways should constructivist scholars conceive of state practices, identity formation, and the structure of the international system in quantum terms? Well, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think a, a lot of things would be the same in terms of how we think about international politics. For me personally, I think the biggest difference is shifting our focus from looking at states and other group actors down to looking at individuals, especially leaders, but also just individuals in general. Um, and because that's really where the quantum effects are most prominent, easiest to see. Um, and I think that is maybe also a way to enhance our understanding of human agency, which is part of the subtext of the book. Yes, and in the same vein, how would you say quantum brain theory affects um, norm formation and intersubjectivity? Um, I don't think I can answer that question in, in, in a short <laughs> Is answer. Is that for book two? Yeah, well, it's in there. It's just it would take a long time, I think, to sort of try to make sense of, of that in a short way. Um, so I'm going to punt on that one, I think. Mm -hmm. That's all right. Sounds good. Um, thank you, Dr. Wendt. Um, so thinking about subjectivity, um, we had some questions for you on ontology, subjectivity, and consciousness. Um, and specifically, if thinking in quantum terms would require an ontological shift. Well, it depends on what you mean by ontological shift. Um, it is certainly possible to use quantum tools to think about social science without any ontological commitment that this is really the way things are. You can just use them on an as-if basis and see if they work or produce interesting results. So there's no requirement of having to believe a new ontology in order to do this. Um, on the other hand, to the extent that quantum methods and quantum ideas prove successful empirically and theoretically, that strengthens the case for thinking that the world really is this way, and then, then it implies an ontological shift. And so for me, you know, I've made that ontological commitment in, in that shift. Um, for others, it would take much longer, perhaps, or maybe we need much more science before people will be willing to do that. Um, but so I don't think you have to make an ontological shift. You can just use this pragmatically as another tool and see what it can do. And that's probably where most people are at and are more, probably more comfortable than with any kind of radical break at this stage. Thank you. And in your book, you talk about if this shift did occur, right? If we start to think of ourselves in quantum terms, that it could potentially be um, a way of breaking through repression, right? Of that, that thinking of ourselves in classical terms has negatively affected human subjectivity. And uh, we were wondering if you could just elaborate on that idea and how thinking of ourselves in quantum terms would um, produce less repression or more freedom. Well, this is the subject of my seminar this afternoon. Um, but just to preview, I think the basic idea is that 
if if people really are quantum systems um, individually, then if we think of ourselves as only classical, then we're in effect repressing or making unaware to ourselves a crucial part of our own subjectivity. The fact that we have all these quantum capacities, which are much greater, uh, much more powerful capacities than a classical being would have. Classical beings are basically robots. Quantum beings are alive. Being alive has advantages over being a robot. Um, and so I think it is a, quite a radical reconception of, of uh, human agency and the possibility of agency that comes out of this perspective. And just for our listeners out there, can you clarify what you mean by uh, thinking classically is like being a robot or the classic subjectivity is like being a robot? Yeah, the orthodox view, the mainstream view in a lot of science today, I think, is that the, the human brain is basically a computer. It's so, the so-called computational theory of mind, and um, but it's a classical computer like all the rest of our computers. Um, and so, and the idea that human beings are just machines goes back a long way. Um, even animals are machines. So, um, I mean, to me, that's very counterintuitive. I don't think I'm a machine. I think I'm an organism, and I don't think organisms and machines are the same thing. But the mechanical machine imagery is very commonplace. And I think a lot of models in social science essentially assume implicitly that people are robotic and, and, and deterministic in their behavior. Thank you for the clarification. Um, you do mention that we are like walking quantum computers, though, which is sort of a mechanical term, right? So could you talk about a little the difference between what you're talking of the mechanical and classical terms and then the quantum computer? No, that's a good question. And actually, I think that the, the phrase quantum mechanics is really a misnomer. There's nothing mechanical about quantum theory at all. Um, so I'm not quite sure where that term originated, but um, it is completely, if we're going to use that word, it's a completely different understanding of what mechanical means. Um, it's a world in which you have non-local causation and all kinds of other stuff that you cannot have in the Newtonian conception of machines and, and mechanisms. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that'd be a start anyway. Our next question has to do with the very central theme in your book of consciousness. Um, and you argue that any work which leans on a model of the human is incomplete without a model of consciousness. Um, and you've mentioned, you know, that this is a long-term debate um, across philosophy and the social sciences. Um, and we wondered, how does your model of consciousness trouble the traditional Cartesian divide between the mind and body? Um, and where does the body come in um, in your formulation as a space of cognition? Well, you may have to remind me about the second yes. part. Those are big, big <laughs> questions. I think on the Cartesian uh, point, you know, the Cartesian model, you've got mind, you've got body. They're somehow present in the same body, but there's no understanding of how they're connected. There's two different worlds, two different, almost two different ontologies. Um, and from my perspective, and this is just my own take on what quantum theory has to say about consciousness, um, instead of the kind of dualism that you have in Cartesian thinking between mind and body, you have what's often called a neutral monism, an underlying monism, where um, at the fundamental level of reality, we have neither mind nor body. Um, we have something underneath both and mind and body emerge from that underlying 
um, field or something, whatever, that's called by different names. Um, so it's dualistic in the sense that I still think mind and body are not exactly the same, um, but they're not different worlds. They're connected in this quantum way, and that it all works in the quantum framework, according, depending on your interpretation anyway. I mean, many quantum theorists and, and interpreters of quantum theory, though, think it has nothing to do with consciousness. Um, and they wouldn't want to bring consciousness in at all. So I'm in a minor, uh, probably a minority position in thinking that consciousness is relevant. But I'm not the only one. I mean, I've got a lot of people that I'm drawing on. So. And you talk about um, the way consciousness emerges. So I wonder, does is it emerging from the brain, or is it is it emerging? Fr- and you talk about this with your wave function. So maybe you can clarify us for us how consciousness emerges and how it is not just from the mind. Well, I think the brain has a lot to do with it, obviously. And um, I would say, I mean, some people have speculated that what is happening in the brain is actually that um, organisms, this would apply to all organisms, not just humans, that organisms are tapping into the, the fundamental level of reality. And so somehow organisms are connected to this underlying field. And so that's where it's all coming from in the end. I'm not sure how to make sense of that, or I'm not sure that has any implications for social science, but it does seem to be a way to think about the metaphysical problem of where does consciousness come from. Um, but you know, most social scientists ignore consciousness. Um, it rarely, the word rarely appears in social science. Um, and I think that that's a, and the reason for that is because no one has a classical theory of consciousness. And this is at least a theory, might be wrong, but it allows us to talk about consciousness in a way that the standard model does not. Um, thank you, Dr. Wendt. Um, and I, I think the last sort of question in this section, we were thinking through some of these concepts in international relations that we wrestle with, violence, hegemony, power, um, and how does quantum affect the way we conceive of these things? Um, specifically thinking of this quantum coherence as a fundamental level of reality, and I was kind of asking you this earlier, but what implications does quantum have on those who enact violence or experience violence, for example? How could we make sense of that type of phenomenon? Well, the first thing is that it allows you to talk about their experience. It made this, this perspective, anyway, um, validates the fact that we have experience and makes that experience important normatively um, from a political standpoint. Um, and, but there was another part to your question, and now I'm forgetting what it was. Um, it was oh, about violence. I think that um, one thing that I think follows from this perspective, this is um, maybe not directly on the issue of the experience of violence, but I think what a quantum perspective allows us to talk about is something like structural violence. I think the classical perspective is uh, you can't make sense of what people would call structural violence in the classical model, because in the classical model, everything is basically a chain reaction of one cause, another cause, another cause, another cause. So you don't really have a sense of the whole structure causing violence. Um, and in a quantum perspective, because it's holistic and you have entanglement, um, you can talk about an entire structure creating violence that's not just a series of step-by-step causal connections or chain reaction connections. Um, I think the idea of structural power, structural violence are very important politically, 
And this is a way to give them a, a better foundation than they have at the present. Thank you. So thank you very much. So we'd like to ask you some questions about pedagogy and really ways in which we can think about quantum terms. And um, before I'd like to start, I would like perhaps to give you an opportunity to explain to our uh, listeners who are still um, wrapping their heads around the idea, how would you actually explain what quantum is? <laughs> well, um, physics today and since the 1920s is divided into two um, branches, essentially classical physics, and which describes the objects of macroscopic reality and tells us how you know, cars work and planets move and all that kind of stuff. Um, and But the assumption has always been that, that or it has, is now the assumption is that classical thinking in physics applies to macroscopic reality and quantum theory applies to subatomic reality. And at that level, what the physicists have found is that reality does not behave anything like it behaves at the macroscopic level. There's all this weird stuff, so-called quantum weirdness is the term they use. Um, and the claim of my book and, and of others is that actually those microscopic or subatomic phenomena are being projected up or scaled up to the macroscopic level and that human beings embody those very same principles at the microscopic level. So instead of a clean classical macro quantum micro divide, the quantum uh, processes go all the way up and down. Okay, thank you. Um, now, you have previously acknowledged that educating people in quantum terms will take a quite heavy investment. Um, and so, practically speaking, do you think that would require the creation of a new pedagogy? Well, I think it would require, yes, I think um, starting at the graduate level and, and retraining people in methods so that they have the right methods, not the wrong ones. Um, but I think ultimately this, I think we've been training human beings for a couple centuries now to think classically about society. And all the philosophical literature assumes that society is a classical phenomenon. And that kind of training is now deeply embedded even in five-year-olds, I would think. So I think ultimately, pedagogically, um, it's important to reconstruct the entire system to get people to think about social life anyway, just social life in quantum versus classical terms. Um, I just, a quick question sort of related to that, that, that connects into um, ontology and epistemology. Um, as you're describing this interconnectedness of the world, um, had you considered engaging with indigenous studies scholars um, or decolonial theory that does um, talk about uh, this interconnectedness, um, this sort of decentering of the human, even these types of concepts, or even Eastern philosophies, um, Buddhism, Taoism, things that, that we've chatted about that you're potentially not drawing on, but maybe in some ways aligning with. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I see a lot of resonance between the arguments of my book and what I know of first Eastern religion, especially Taoism and Buddhism, but also indigenous um, you know, ontologies and epistemologies and decolonial ones and so on. So I think there is a lot of connection. Um, and in a way, the quantum framework is a way to perhaps um, give those perspectives, which are not seen as very scientific by the mainstream, 
It's a way to give them actually a hyper-scientific basis, which is a quantum basis. Um, so it's a way to elevate them, I think, politically also. Um, and so I think maybe create a more level playing field against the kind of mainstream classical hegemony, essentially. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sure. Um, the next question is, in thinking along those lines, do you think that a, a such a pedagogy that you were describing have the potential to perhaps disrupt the division between the natural and social sciences? Well, the subtitle of the book is Unifying Physical and Social Ontology, so I, I hope that it would overcome the division. And the whole point of the book really is to try to integrate consciousness and human experience into a naturalistic scientific worldview, um, which has eluded us so far. Um, so yes, I think they're the I think in the end at the end of the day, there's only one world. There's not a world of mind and a world of body. Um, there's just one world and some and that world can be studied scientifically. And so there must be some way to fit consciousness into that world, our model of that world. And I think the classical people have been trying for several centuries and they're at a total dead end as far as I'm concerned. Um, their concluding consciousness is, is an illusion, I think, is a sign of the dead-endedness. Um, and so this is an alternative way to think about how consciousness fits in. It might be wrong. It's just a hypothesis. It's very speculative. But I would say that even the classical view at this point is very, is very speculative um, because after three centuries, if you're at a dead end, something's wrong. Um, so it's not obvious to me that this is any more speculative than the mainstream view. And actually, I would just add that at this stage of the game with the mind-body problem, if your approach to consciousness is not crazy, then I don't think it's serious. It's really all the easy, simple options are off the table at this point. I think all we're left with now are really radical ideas, whether it's quantum or something else. So you said previously that your book is contingent upon, or some of your claims in your book are contingent upon the findings of quantitative, or not quantitative, um, quantum game theory. Um, so would you say, what would those findings need to look like, and how would that disrupt the classical model? Well, quantum game theory um, so far has not, it's, it's very, it's a very mathematical, <coughs> excuse me, literature. There's very little connection to anything empirical at this stage. Um, but what quantum game theory does show mathematically is that if you play any standard game like Prisoner's Dilemma or Chicken or anything like that, any standard classical game, and you play it with quantum players and with quantum rules, that you'll get more cooperation, you would predict more cooperation than you would predict in the classical version because the players are able to take advantage of their entanglement, exploit their entanglement to cooperate. So I think what it would do is if we eventually can test quantum game theory propositions against behavior, my expectation is that if we look at what experimental game theorists have done, they have lots of empirical results. My understanding is those results do not conform very well to standard game theory. My prediction or expectation is that if you match it up with quantum predictions, they would match up actually very well. So I think it would be a complete rethinking of what game theory is, what interaction is, um, inner subjectivity and everything. So I think it would be quite radical, um, but that is yet to come in a sense because people haven't yet done that work. Speaking of reworking things, 
where do you see quantum taking the field of IR? Um, as far as, for example, what could we do with the Hobbesian state of nature um, argument? Or you've mentioned, uh, how would we, would we have to redo everything essentially? Um, for example, the constructivist um, arguments that have been made, the realist arguments, how do we move forward with quantum do we have to completely throw those other arguments out, those other theories out, or can they work together? I don't think anything has to be thrown out. And if you think about the situation in physics, quantum theory subsumed classical physics. It didn't invalidate it. It just fitted in to a much larger, uh, more capacious framework. So I, I would expect that in a quantum IR, you would still have realists, you would still have liberals. They might all be constructivists now, but that's okay. Um, so, um, but so, and there was something else in your question about. I think where would we go uh, with with IR? I think yes. that yeah, I think the big difference. I'm not sure that we would need to rethink everything, but I would say that everything that we've done so far in IR is a candidate for rethinking. Um, and the key difference for me, anyway, uh, between the classical and quantum worlds is the presence of entanglement. And that's what many quantum theorists themselves see as the distinctive or most important contribution of quantum theory. And if, if human beings are entangled, um, then if we wanted to start off, you know, if the Hobbesian state of nature is how IR, usually that's its origin story in a sense, well, we would need to quantize Hobbes's story and put in quantum actors in the state of nature. And my guess is that instead of a, a dog-eat-dog, kill-or-be-killed world that you get with Hobbes, where life is nasty, brutish, and short, you would have a much more cooperative world because quantum game theory, again, predicts more cooperation even in the same game as classical does. So just to clarify the notion of entanglements for our listeners, what would entanglements practically look like? Could you give some examples? Yeah, actually, I think, I mean, in physics, entanglement is very mysterious, um, and they don't really understand why it, why it exists or what it is. But my view is that in social science and in social life, all of us are actually very familiar with entanglement because entanglement simply describes a situation where you cannot fully characterize one, in this case, actor, without reference to another actor. So they're not completely separate. You, you have to describe them jointly in order to describe them completely. Um, and that's a very different view of what individuals are than the classical view, which has us being completely separate. Um, and so I think the entanglement, um, so your question was about what is entanglement, right? So it's just really it, all it is is being unable to separate actors completely or, or, in the, or in the physics case, separate particles. And the examples would be, um, the, the most famous example would be master-slave. You can't describe what a master is unless you have a slave and vice versa. But teacher-student, husband-wife, you think about any of the identities that all of us assume all the time, all day long, almost all those identities are relational. They're almost all connected to somebody else's identity. And you can't even describe my identity unless we describe yours too. Um, so in that sense, everything is, is relational in a deep way, uh, much more than it is in the classical framework. People relate to each other classically in the classical tradition, but that's not an entanglement kind of relationship. Um, and just to further this question of entanglement, 
I'm thinking about your treatment of material or your discussion of materialism. And I'm curious, um, in your in your definition of entanglement, where does matter come into play? Is it only ideas um, and the intersubjective meanings, or is there something with the material world also that plays a role in these entanglements? No, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I've thought this through. My sort of gut instinct is that since we're talking macroscopic systems, in the case of humans, that the matter that we confront, the matter in this pen, um, is classical matter, essentially, and it doesn't have quantum properties. What is quantum at the macro level, I would say, is anything having to do with the mind. So everything in our minds and everything that is shared between our minds, is, which is how society is built. I mean, society is basically a state of mind, a collective state of mind, and all that is quantum. But macroscopic objects, material objects, I would say are classical phenomena, even though they're made up of subatomic particles, of course, but their quantum aspects kind of wash out. It's the standard picture. Um, and for the human body, it's more complicated because our bodies are, in one sense, classical body, material bodies. On the other hand, they house a quantum brain. And so I don't know quite how to put those two things together, but that's the situation I think we've got. Thank you. Yes, and I was thinking about this, you know, working through your book um, and, again, thinking about the mind and body. And I had thought about affect theory, and I was wondering if you were familiar with it or if you had considered engaging with it in a quantum way it just sometimes uh there are there are moments where i think that it would maybe be almost a bridge to quantum or a way of making the conversation reach a wider audience perhaps or i was just curious if you had yeah i don't know uh anything about affect theory per se i mean i assume it's talking about emotions and i've read a little bit of literature on the emotions and not a lot. Um, I am struck in the literature that I have seen how often psychologists and others who study emotions manage to talk about emotions without ever talking about experience or consciousness. Um, and I think what the quantum perspective does when it comes to affect is highlight the experiential dimension, um, which if we didn't have that, I don't think you would have emotions. So that's really a crucial component. Um, but affect theory more generally, I do agree that there's a nat- probably a natural synergy there. I just don't know enough about affect theory to comment. The experiential dimension meaning consciousness, meaning yes. what's happening in yeah. the brain. What's, what it feels like to have a certain – what it feels like to be in pain. That seems to me to be an important thing that social scientists shouldn't lose sight of. Does language and linguistic structures always have to mediate these entanglements? Uh, Not necessarily. Um, If you encountered somebody um, on a desert island, just accidentally, um, and you spoke English and they spoke Danish and you couldn't communicate, you know, uh, any other with words, you would still have entanglements visually um, and through the other senses. um, And you would I don't know if those are going to help you very much in communicating with somebody, but the entanglement is um, actually language is a very special case of entanglement. I mean, all organisms are entangled, um, and I don't think most organisms probably don't have language. So, do you have any question or anything else that you'd like to add? Any question you'd like for us to ask you, or perhaps something that you'd like to add? 
Um, yeah, I guess I, well, I would say two things. I mentioned this in you know, the workshop yesterday. This is the first time in my career that I've ever written something that I think is either true or false. And social science isn't usually like that. We're always dealing with, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, this is either true or false. And it's a very speculative argument, and it could be completely wrong. Um, if it's right, it's, I think, revolutionary, um, but it could very well be completely wrong. Um, and at this stage of the game, the evidence, I think, is very unclear. We don't know which one is right. There's enough evidence for this to be a serious option now, which wasn't 20, well, not the case 20 years ago. Um, but we'll still need more research, more science, to really see if this is actually a more plausible model than the traditional model. So in the meantime, I would just encourage people not to become you know, quantum fanatics or anything like that, but to just give it a try, just pragmatically. Um, try quantizing Hobbes' state of nature. Uh, try quantizing Arrow's theorem. There's a zillion things that'd be very easy to quantize in social science, and there are articles waiting to be written by people who want to quantize these things. Um, so I think that even if you don't want to take the whole hog commitment into a quantum ontology, um, there's a lot of work that can be done in a more pragmatic fashion, and that could also advance one's career. So I would encourage people just to have an open mind, I guess. Does quantizing something mean thinking of it in terms of wave function, or does that have other meanings as well? Uh, it would include wave functions. I mean, the basic idea of quantizing, as I understand it, is, and it, it's easiest to visualize if you're talking about quantizing a theory that's very axiomatic, like rational choice theory in, in economics. And quantizing simply means pulling out the assumptions, the axioms in the theory that are clearly classical, the sort of yes-no binary kinds of assumptions, and replacing them with quantum assumptions. So that the structure of a theory is overall the same, but each of the different axioms now works differently because they have quantum properties. And that's where you get then different predictions and then hopefully different results. But it always means sort of basically substituting for existing classical assumptions, putting in quantum ones, and then seeing what difference that makes. Could social scientists do this work at this moment without the assistance of quantum physicists? Would it have to be a collaborative work in order to write a paper like that? Um, a lot of the best work that is being done, and especially the work that's more empirical, which is in uh, psychology, um, is often collaborative work between mathematical psychologists and quantum physicists, or just the physicists themselves, you know, wandering into psychology. Um, so I think that is a very fruitful connection. On the other hand, my book, there's no math in the book at all. Um, I wrote it entirely at a conceptual level. So one could do some things like quantizing Hobbes' state of nature that could be done conceptually, I think, rather than mathematically. I'm not sure the math adds a whole lot unless you're really testing something really specific. Um, but the conceptual stuff I think can, anybody can do and is really, I think, in a way much more fundamental to the, the way in which we understand politics and social science altogether. And what is your next move with quantum theory? Um, well, I'm writing this paper about pedagogy um, and the, the terrible consequences of three centuries of classical education um, um, and so making the case that we need to, in a sense, rebuild human beings on a, in a quantum way and then maybe we can solve problems like climate change more easily or whatever. Um, so that's part of it. That's one paper. 
I'm also still writing papers that are responding to my critics and that kind of thing, but those aren't very interesting. Um, so I'm taking it one paper at a time, basically. And the book took, took 10 years to write, so I figure I can take a couple years, well, it's three or four now, but of, of um, just writing a few papers. And I'll leave it to see till later to see what I do in terms of another book. What do you think is the promise of quantum? So for somebody to consider thinking in quantum terms or redesigning, um, you know, uh, quantum's ways of, of, of thinking and eventually even thinking about new pedagogies as we were talking about, what is the promise behind it? What would somebody consider that shift? Well, um, the point I'm going to, the argument I'll make in my talk this afternoon um, is that the effect of classical education is to produce human beings who are alienated, alienated from nature, alienated from each other, and alienated from ourselves. Um, and so I think it, redoing human beings in quantum terms, in principle, getting rid of that alienation, that estrangement, and helping us see that we're actually all entangled, we're all of a piece, um, we're not separated completely, um, and so our potential for cooperation in solving problems is much greater than we think it is, and that people are not necessarily or inherently as selfish as we assume. Um, and actually, it's, there's, I, I know there's some findings in economics that economists have done that when you teach economics to undergraduates, it tends to make them more selfish. Um, so that's a sort of a direct effect of classical thinking on a person's mind, and that's been shown, I think, empirically. So this argument that I'm making is kind of a generalization of that kind of effect. And then in getting people um, to think about these uh, quantum phenomena, do you think your book is the best place to start um, for understanding quantum? Or it, you had mentioned that you came across a book 10 years ago, and that's what inspired you. Um, what is the best way for someone who doesn't know anything about it um, to become interested in quantum? Well, it's hard. The startup costs are very high. Um, the vocabulary is difficult. Part of the difficulty, and this is a, a sign of how hegemonic the classical picture is, is that in college, almost nobody studies quantum theory except physicists. Um, and so people graduate college never being exposed to the math, never ha having no idea what quantum physics is about. Um, so, and that's a huge problem. Um, but your question specifically was about what? Um, um, how... Yes, if there was a, a, a specific oh, material or good place to start. Well, my book, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I tried to teach my book in a class, and at the end we concluded it was too hard, and we couldn't teach it that way. So um, the book, I, people have told me it's very well written, it's very clear, but it's obviously very, very abstract. Um, so there are a lot of introductory texts on quantum theory, some of which are mathematical and some of which are not. It's a very popular trade press, popular press kind of subject. And then once you get into that kind of literature, it becomes less scientific. It's maybe more a little bit touchy-feely and stuff. But but a lot of the, that's how I initially myself got a sense of it. So I read The Dancing Wu Li Masters. Um, there's a neat book by Nick Herbert. I'm forgetting Quantum Reality, I think. These are books that are not for an academic audience, but are still communicating the ideas. And that's once I got a conceptual grasp, I was able then to deepen myself by reading the more technical literature, even if I couldn't do the math. So I'm not sure I would begin with my book. 
Um, but there are some, I do reference several books um, in the quantum part of my book, which are good introductions that are a bit more, um, less technical in, in character. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed this interview thank you. with you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Good. Good job. Thank you, Alexander Wendt, and thank you to our interviewers, Virginia Tech graduate students, Netta Barada, Linnea Cutter, and Molly Todd. You've been listening to the Trustees Without Borders interview with scholar Dr. Alexander Wendt. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Trustees Without Borders is a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Trustees Without Borders features leading researchers, practitioners, thinkers, performers, writers, and designers all working to strengthen community capacity for innovation and creative change. You can find an archive of Trustees Without Borders interviews and other information at our website, www.ipg.vt.edu. Until next time, remember that as trustees of community, we work without borders or limits on our ideas and aspirations, without borders on what we think is possible, to understand who we are as human beings, to solve problems that keep us from achieving a just, inclusive community that works for us all.